0: It's the Mark Stein Show.
1: And now, here's Mark. Memorial Day in a land of lockdown. For some Americans, Memorial Day is a day to remember when Johnny didn't come marching home for far more Americans since Congress foolishly legislated it into a three-day weekend half a century back. It's a day for beaches and barbecues and the first parties of the summer, as the American Legion often rightly complains. In my corner of New Hampshire, something of the old post-Civil War Decoration Day survives, a day for going to the cemetery and, quote, strewing with flowers or otherwise decorating the graves of comrades who died in defence of their country during the late rebellion. When men die young in war, they are not always fathers, and it is left to parents, sisters, nephews, great-nieces to tend their graves. But I was always touched by the tradition in my town, as the grade-schoolers troop off to lay their flowers, of letting newcomers with no forebears in the cemetery adopt for a day those war-dead with no family members left in town, so that on Decoration Day no grave goes undecorated. If you live in a small town, you get used to parade days round the Common. Fourth of July, Old Home Day, the fire trucks, the floats, the horses, the children. If your town's my size, the problem is that uh, everybody who'd enjoy watching the parade is in it. But Memorial Day is different, a little more particular. A clutch of veterans from the Second World War to Iraq march round the Green, followed by the town band and the Boy Scouts... A diminished and suicidally ill-governed institution at the national level, but not quite so pitiful at the local. Oh, and the fifth graders too. The band plays Anchors Away, the caissons go rolling, my country tis of thee, God bless America... And in an alarming nod to modernity, for reasons I know not, Ray Stevens' song, Everything is Beautiful in Its Own Way, a billboard number one exactly half a century ago, May 1970. One of the town's selectmen gives a short speech, so do a couple of representatives from state organisations, and then the fifth graders recite the Gettysburg Address and the Great War's great poetry. There's a brief prayer and a three-gun salute, exciting the dogs and babies. Wreaths are laid, and then the crowd went slowly up the hill to the Legion hut for the ice cream social. It's always the same, unchanging through all the years. Until this year, thanks to the Chinese virus and the lockdown. And from my little North Country backwater to the big national parade in Washington, it's all off, everywhere, everything, cancelled. And I'm really missing the guns and the dogs and the band, because it's the best part of small-town New Hampshire and reminds me why, even as all around northern New England, meth and heroin and crime and despair rampage on, even through all that, the Memorial Day parade reminds me why I fell in love with this part of the world. When the parade ends and we all assemble by the Civil War Memorial, it is, as I said, the fifth graders who get to honour the veterans in verse. Uh, But it's not just the classics they recite. There are a few self-penned poems, too. The latter can be a bit hit and miss, and one has to be alert, given the dispositions of some of my neighbours, for give peace a chance, war is never the answer, not so subtle subtexts. But a few years ago, my then fifth-grade daughter was asked to write something, and so she did. Nothing to do with me. I was away in Chicago all that week. But I was pleased to see that all the rhymes are true. She is older now, and today she would try to write it more sophisticatedly. But I've always liked its heartfelt directness. So this is my daughter's fifth-grade poem as a ten-year-old girl delivered it on a New Hampshire town common for Memorial Day. The stars and stripes, red, white, and blue, wave above our heroes true. It makes us cry, it makes us weep, but in our hearts we will keep. The sacrifice our soldiers gave, they shall not die in vain, for they have given us the freedom they have fought to gain. A poem for this day from my beloved daughter Cecy, the real talent in the family. A lockdown Memorial Day isn't really Memorial Day at all. For a great nation, for the first time in a century and a half, cannot honour either its dead or its own best traditions. On this Decoration Day, I miss it terribly. I miss it all. Even, gulp, everything is beautiful in its own way. The Mark Stein Club presents The Hundred Years Ago Show The passing of the torch, the graves that lie afar And a French tribute to America's heroes It's Memorial Day, 1920.
2: A hundred years from today.
1: Memorial Day is changing in America as the aged Civil War veterans of the Grand Army of the Republic dwindle in number. The young veterans of the recent World War step up to take their place. This Memorial Day is the first since the establishment of the new American Legion, whose members are conspicuous in today's observances, from Maine to California. Last Memorial Day, a shattered Europe was emerging from the rubble of war and struggling to rebuild. Today, for the first time ever, America's Memorial Day is being observed across the British Isles. Sir Auckland Geddes, the British ambassador in Washington, has sent a greeting to John McElroy, commander of the Grand Army of the Republic, as follows. In the name of my sovereign, His Majesty King George, and of the British peoples throughout the world, I hail America's sons and daughters... ...who have died that freedom may live.
0: Belgium put the kaiser on the Kaiser... ...Europe took a stick and made him fall... ...when we enter Germany, not the Kaiser it will be... ...oh, it won't be half the Kaiser, anymore.
1: In Belgium, King Albert has ordered... ...that the graves of US soldiers buried on his soil... ...be decorated according to American custom and declared that the Belgian army is proud and happy to have fought shoulder-to-shoulder with the American forces. Five miles from the centre of Paris... At the cemetery in Surin, where lie 1,541 U.S. soldiers, the French Republic's great war hero, Marshal Pétain, the Lion of Verdun, told 10,000 attendees of his country's enduring gratitude to America's sons, and declared, They are not resting as strangers in a strange land, these soldiers of liberty, sent overseas at a moment when the fate of the world was at stake, and towards whom the heart of France turns gratefully today. These tombs will be forever watched over with the same pious care as that which our country gives her own children. After his remarks, the Ambassador of the United States, Mr Hugh Wallace, led the dignitaries up the little hill to lay a wreath At the statue of the American doughboy. The British ambassador, the Earl of Derby, and military attache, Colonel Sackville West, followed with a wreath entwined with the British and American colours. Across France, in 497 burial grounds, from the English Channel to the border of Switzerland, the graves of America's war dead have been decorated with flowers and the stars and stripes. In Alsace, a children's chorus marched from one resting place to another, singing songs. Monsieur millerand the recently appointed French Prime Minister, sent a special message this Memorial Day. The feeling of France and of the French government toward the American people and public powers of America are today, need one say it, what they were in the hour of common sacrifice and armed struggle to assure the triumph of liberty in the world. We have won the results for which we fought together. The principle of democracy is saved. The reign of democracy is assured for the future. The war has been won in the presence of the tombs which hold the perishable and sacred dust of your children, fallen side by side with ours in the Great World War, we can state truly that they have not died in vain. The sacrifice of these precious lives, the tears of those dear to them who remain, the grief of their country, have been the ransom of a better future. The government of the French Republic salutes with emotion the American people at the moment that they weep for their dead fallen in the great war And that's the way of the world, Memorial Day 1920.
2: A hundred years from today, a hundred years from today.
0: Mark Stein's Poem of the Week.
1: I can't really let my daughter be the only versifier on our show, so let's have someone almost as accomplished. For me, the great poetry of the Great War belongs to chilly autumn, to the eleventh hour of the eleventh day of the eleventh month, when the Commonwealth and continental Europe mourn their dead. So here is something from that most terrible of American wars, when men fought their own countrymen. Everyone knows Herman Melville as a novelist, the author of that great American novel, Moby Dick, But in fact, he quit novel writing four years before the Civil War after a rocky reception for The Confidence Man. In lieu of full-length fiction, he turned to poetry, and this is from his first published collection, a poem on the Battle of Shiloh. That took place in April 1862 in Tennessee. In just two days, the dead and wounded and missing numbered 23,746. It was the bloodiest battle in American history, although it would not hold that title for long, for worse was to come later that year and worse still in the next. Melville rhymes Shiloh with Flylo and Lilo, which, to my ears, sound a bit like musical comedy rhymes. More controversially to others, he presents his foes in battle as comrades in death, quote, fame or country least their care. But as old soldiers know, that can be true for enemies on far distant foreign fields of battle, and is surely more so in The Carnage of Pittsburgh Landing, When American Fought American. First published in 1866 in Battle Pieces and Aspects of the War by Herman Melville, Shiloh, a Requiem. Skimming lightly, wheeling still, the swallows fly low. Over the field in clouded days, the forest-field of Shiloh. Over the field where April rain solaced the parched one, stretched in pain through the pause of night that followed the Sunday fight around the church of Shiloh. The church so lone, the log-built one, that echoed to many a parting groan, a natural prayer of dying foemen mingled there. Foemen at morn, but friends at eve. Fame or country least their care. What, like a bullet, can undeceive? But now they lie low, while over them the swallows skim. And all is hushed at Shiloh. A poem from me to you this Memorial Day by Herman Melville. Shiloh, a requiem from his collection Battle Pieces and Aspects of the War. The book was not well received by critics. In its first two years, the publisher sent out 300 complimentary copies to reviewers and sold only 486 to paying customers. That's one reason Melville... Was forced to work as a customs inspector in New York for the next 19 years. In that famously corrupt sewer, he had a rare reputation for honesty.
2: I'm just trying to be a father.
1: America is at war this Memorial Day, though it is a war without meaningful strategic objectives or identifiable national interest. It is officially America's longest war, and it's almost as if that designation alone absolves our leaders from the obligation to end it, never mind win it. It started brilliantly and innovatively, as so many of our wars do, and then came the long, slow bleed... Will they write poems about it? Will they sing songs about it? Even the newspapers do not really carry any great vivid accounts of the heroism and courage of the men on the ground. One of the first Americans lost, over 18 years ago now, was USAF combat controller John A. Chapman, who grew up in Windsor Locks, Connecticut, and died 10,000 feet up Takur Gar, in the Armour Mountains of Taktia province. In the early hours of March 4th, 2002, his Chinook came under fire, a Navy SEAL fell out and was taken by the enemy, and the helicopter landed four miles away for the team to go get their comrade. He's the second man out and under heavy fire from every direction, he heads for the summit alone. But firing on his targets, even as he's slogging his way uphill through thigh deep snow. Deep snow in the dark and being shot at from a bunker above him. He opts to charge the bunker single handedly in the face of point blank fire from two AK 47s. He's on top of them, takes out both guys, and saves the lives of the SEAL team below. He begins firing at the next bunker, where Chechen and Uzbek fighters are holed up with machine guns, grenades, RPGs. And then John Chapman is hit twice in the torso and falls to the ground. The SEAL team thought he was dead, and they needed to get off that mountain in a hurry. Overhead, there was a predator drone recording the scene. And years later, new technology enabled the Pentagon to analyze the footage more forensically. And it showed something remarkable, that John Chapman, though mortally wounded, recovered consciousness and resumed the fight.
3: At approximately 5.20 in the morning, Chapman recovers and begins to engage the enemy. Of the two rounds that originally wounded him, At least one was mortal, and at this time he is experiencing severe blood loss and shock. Despite that, he begins his one-man stand against two dozen enemy combatants. The timestamp at the bottom shows it is now 6.05 in the morning and fully light. He's been fighting alone now for 40 plus minutes and has received more gunshot and shrapnel wounds as a result of the fierce combat. In this stunning display of determination and courage, Chapman can be seen fighting hand-to-hand with the fighter. Six minutes later in this new shot, Chapman can hear another helicopter approaching the summit. John begins engaging the enemy in multiple directions and is rapidly approaching the last of his ammunition. The enemy is desperately trying to displace Chapman so they can put heavy weapons or rocket propelled grenades in Bunker 1 while simultaneously engaging the helicopter. With the choice to save his life or the lives of his unknown comrades, Chapman makes the decision to climb out of the bunker and begin firing in multiple directions as can be seen in the inset. Suffering from as many as a dozen wounds, Chapman is in fact already in the process of dying. As he fights, the helicopter is struck by a rocket propelled grenade and makes a remarkable controlled crash just below Chapman and the summit. Chapman, now off screen, continues to cover his comrades as they pour out of the stricken helicopter. Some of them are fatally shot as they exit. These images, with Chapman fighting the enemy at close quarter, are the last to show him alive and in this heroic act, until, finally, after 16 bullet and shrapnel wounds, Chapman succumbs when he is shot through the heart. We will never know his final thoughts or words, but what we do know is, his decisions and actions single-handedly saved the lives of 23 comrades. After seeing the footage, the Air Force Secretary
1: began pushing to get John Chapman the Medal of Honour. On the other hand, Naval Special Warfare began trying to obstruct the Medal of Honour because they disliked the implication that the SEAL team had left a man behind, though they surely had good reason to think that he was well and truly dead. So extraordinary tenacity and heroism on the peak of Takur Gar Mountain in Afghanistan turns into just another bureaucratic pissing match by the time it gets back to Washington. Nevertheless, 16 and a half years after his death, in August 2018, John Chapman was posthumously awarded by President Trump the Medal of Honour. He was the first airman to receive it since the Vietnam War and in the 150 years since the medal was established early in the Civil War, he was also the first American ever to be so honoured on the evidence not of eyewitness accounts but of the unseen drone camera whirring overhead, a 21st century technology recording a man in the most ancient and primal of fights – Hand-to-hand combat with a merciless foe in the wilds of Afghanistan. March 4th, 2002. Any day now, boys born after John Chapman's death will be shipping out to the Hindu Kush for new acts of heroism entirely untethered from any coherent war aims by their generals in Washington. And the drones will whir overhead, and perhaps 16 and a half years later, in, what, 2037, President Ocasio-Cortez, or whoever, will honour them in long-ago death. Rest in peace, John A. Chapman.
0: And now, Stein Online presents Mark Stein's Song of the Week.
1: In 1861, the United States had nothing that was recognized as a national anthem. And given that the country was now at war, it was thought it ought to find one. A song, quote, that would inspire Americans to patriotism and military ardor. A 13-member committee was appointed and on May the 17th, they invited submissions of appropriate anthems, the eventual winner to receive $500 or Medal of Equal Value. By the end of July, they had a 1,000 submissions, including some from Europe, but nothing with what they felt was real feeling. Because it's hard to write a patriotic song to order. At the time... Dr. Samuel Howe was working with the Sanitary Commission of the Department of War, and one fall day he and Mrs. Howe were taken to a camp a few miles from Washington for a review of General McClellan's Army of the Potomac. That day, for the first time in her life, Julia Ward Howe heard soldiers singing. Long, 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 long. Ah, yes, the famous song about the famous abolitionist hanged in 1859 in Charlestown, Virginia, before a crowd including Robert E. Lee, Stonewall Jackson and John Wilkes Booth. Well, no, not exactly. John Brown's body was not, in fact, composed for the fire-breathing abolitionist, but for an entirely different John Brown, a sergeant with the 2nd Battalion of the Boston Light Infantry Volunteer Militia and a tenor with its glee club. He was a Scotsman and the subject of a lot of good-natured joshing, including a song about him mouldering in his grave. They called it the John Brown Song. On July the 18th, 1861, at a regimental march past the old State House in Boston, the boys sang the song and the crowd assumed reasonably enough that it was inspired by the life of John Brown the Kansas abolitionist, not John Brown the Scots tenor. There are many songs about real people, but as far as I know, this is the only song about a real person in which posterity has mistaken it for a song about a completely different person. John Brown's body is about some other fellow's body, not John Brown the hanged somebody, but John Brown the comparative nobody. Later on, various other verses were written about the famous John Brown, and the original John Brown found his comrade's musical tribute to him gradually annexed by the other guy. For the record... Sergeant John Brown died during a Union retreat when the enlistment of Colonel Webster's 12th Massachusetts Regiment expired in July 1864. Only 85 of more than 1,000 men were left to return home to New England, and indeed John Brown's body was mouldering in its grave. The Glee Club lads from the Boston Light Infantry came up with the words, but they'd recycled an old Methodist tune. Back in the 1850s, a Sunday school composer, William Steffi of Richmond, Virginia, was asked to go and lead the singing at a Georgia camp meeting. When he got there, he found there were no songbooks, and so improvised some words to one of those melodies that, like most of the others in those pre-copyright days, was just sort of floating in the ether. Say, brothers, will you meet us? Say, brothers, will you
2: meet us? Say, brothers, will you meet us? On Canaan's happy shore.
1: And somehow this combination, an improvised camp-meeting chorus with an in-joke verse about a Boston Scotsman, became the most popular marching song of the Union forces, the one bellowed out as Sherman's men marched through Georgia in 1864. According to William Hubbard's History of American Music, Lieutenant Chandler, in writing of Sherman's March to the Sea, tells that when the troops were halted at Shadydale, Georgia, the regimental band played John Brown's body. Whereupon a number of Negro girls, coming from houses supposed to have been deserted, formed a circle around the band and in a solemn and dignified manner danced to the tune. The Negro girls, with faces grave and demeanor characteristic of having performed a ceremony of religious tenor, retired to their cabins. It was learned from the older Negroes that this air, without any particular words to it, had long been known among them as the wedding tune they considered it a sort of voodoo air, which held within its strains a mysterious hold upon the young coloured women who had been taught that unless they danced when they heard it played, they would be doomed to a life of spinsterhood." There doesn't seem to be a lot of evidence to support that last fancy. But whatever the tune's origin, when Julia Ward Howe heard the song for the first time that autumn day in 1861, John Brown's body was already famous. She loved the martial vigour of the music, but knew the words were inadequate for a lasting hymn. So her minister, Dr Clark, suggested she write some new ones. And early the following morning at her Washington hotel, she rose before dawn, and on a piece of sanitary commission paper wrote the words we sing today, casting the war as a conflict in which one side has the advantage of God's terrible swift sword. finished the words and went back to bed. It was published in the Atlantic Monthly in February 1862. They didn't credit Mrs. Howe, and they paid her only $4. her forebear Richard Ward was royal governor of the British colony of Rhode Island and his son Samuel Ward was governor of the American state of Rhode Island. Her husband, like his friend the poet Lord Byron, had played an important role in helping the Greeks win independence from the Turks. Mrs Howe herself wrote many poems, Broadway plays and newspaper columns. But the Battle Hymn of the Republic is her greatest achievement. On The Battle Hymn of the Republic by Julia Ward Howe. They sang it at the funeral of Winston Churchill at St Paul's Cathedral with the Queen among the congregants. Her Majesty sang it again in public, again at St Paul's for the second time in her life at the Service of Remembrance in London three days after September 11th, 2001, at the start of of a new war. Mark Stein's Last Call. <laughs> Today's show has taken us to France to commemorate the Great War, to Tennessee for the Battle of Shiloh, to Massachusetts for a singing sergeant in a Boston glee club, and to a mountain in Afghanistan for the unending war of our own time. But let me come back to my own small town in New Hampshire. Lincoln's mystic chords of memory are difficult to hear in the din of the modern world, and one of the best ways to hear them is to stand before an old headstone, read the name and wonder at the young life compressed into those brute dates, 1840 to 1862, 1843 to 1864. In my cemetery, there are three graves belonging to forebears of a lady who worked for me for many years, although I didn't know that at the time I first came across them. The men buried there are Turner Grant his cousin John Gilbert, and his sister's fiancée, Charles Lovejoy. They had been friends since boyhood, and all three enlisted on the same day. Charles died on March 5, 1863, Turner on the following day, March 6th, and John five days later, March 11th. Nothing splendid or heroic. They were tentmates in Virginia, and there was an outbreak of measles in the camp. For some reason, there was a bureaucratic mix-up, as there often is, and the army neglected to inform the families. Then, on their final journey home, the bodies were taken off the train at the wrong town, a stop too early, another mix-up, nothing unusual. It was a Saturday afternoon, and the stationmaster didn't want the caskets sitting there all weekend. So a man who knew where the Grants lived offered to take them up to the next town, my town, and drop them off on Sunday morning. When he got there, the family was at church, so he unloaded the coffins from his buggy and left without a word or a note to anyone. Imagine coming home from Sunday worship And finding three caskets waiting on the porch. Imagine being young Caroline Grant, and those caskets contain the bodies of your brother, your cousin, and the man to whom you're betrothed. I have passed that house on the road to the Connecticut River and the bridge to Vermont literally thousands of times over the years. And not every time, but once every six or seven times, I think of Caroline Grant and the extraordinary burdens ordinary persons are condemned to bear in times of war. And I think of three boyhood chums, fast friends, going off to war, excited by the thrill of it, the romance, the great adventure, and done in by the measles. There are men who die doing something heroic, like charging a machine gun nest. And there are many more who die because everything just gets screwed up. As it is on this Memorial Day, when something brand new, but as random and arbitrary as the measles, stalks the land. Time passes and moss and lichen creep across ancient gravestones but the men beneath them are forever young, and Turner Grant, John Gilbert, and Charles Lovejoy are under the stars singing at a camp in Virginia. Words and music by Walter Kittredge, and a great favourite of the Union Army. Alas for those comrades of days gone by whose forms are amiss tonight. Alas for the young and true who lie where the battle flag brave the fight.
0: The Mark Stein Show is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and O'Kill Media. All rights reserved.